Hello and welcome to Resourceful, stories from the site, proudly brought to you by Resources Unearthed. At Resources Unearthed, we help executives, professionals and business owners in mining and resources to be successful both personally and professionally. We've created this podcast to help you in your employment or business, and we'll be chatting to people who have a proven track record of success in the industry. Thanks for joining us. I'm James Marshall from Resources Unearthed, and welcome to today's episode of Resourceful. Today, we're chatting with Richard Morland, a consultant living in Yellowknife, who has unparalleled experience in leadership, management, and safety. He emphasizes the importance of asking for help, which he believes is always more available than you might think, as well as relationship building within a team environment. Richard also shares his view that we're not defined by the industry we work in, and that the skills you learn on the job can be applied to many others in order to benefit your community. Hi, my name is Brett Cribb, Managing Director and Founder of Resources Unearthed, and welcome to Resourceful, Stories from the Site. Today I'm joined by Richard Morland. I've known Richard for 30 years, seven of which I've worked for him in a team I regard as one of the highest performing and most enjoyable I've ever worked in. Today most of these team members have gone on to much greater things in the industry, and I'm confident they would still use some of the skills they've learned from Richard as I do. Richard has a wealth of experience in leadership and management, and I'd say one of his strengths is creating an outstanding culture with no compromises around safety. He's regularly sought after for his leadership skills and coaching, and he continues to consult in the area. Today, Richard and I will explore some of his most memorable stories from the site. So wherever you are, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Resourceful. So welcome, Richard, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for asking me to be involved in this. After that introduction, I think I want to take you uh, everywhere I go. <laughs> That's very good. Perhaps to begin with, Richard, could you tell us a bit about how and where you started in the mining and the resources industry? My uh, interest in engineering started uh, when I was a child. I knew that by the time I was eight years old, I was going to be uh, an engineer of some description. Uh, I really enjoyed building things and constructing things. My uh, desire to go into the mining industry, though, didn't emerge until I was at university, where I had to make the choice between the different engineering disciplines, and mining uh, really appealed to me from the perspective that it didn't look like a job where I'd be office-bound. Uh, it'd be a job where I could get out and about. I could work with big machinery and explosives, and it also looked like the sort of career where I could travel the world. In 1981, I graduated from the University of Queensland and I started my career in 1982 at Mount Isa Mines Limited. And that was an interesting development in my life. It turned out that I was the third generation in my family to work for MIM. My grandfather worked at MIM in the 1920s and my father, who was an electrical engineer, worked for the company in the 1970s and early 1980s. So it felt like a very good fit to be starting my career at MIM. And uh, in the 37 years since, the career that I envisaged has really delivered in all respects. It's been a wonderful career. I've spent some time uh, in North Queensland, in Western Australia. I even spent a year in Melbourne. 
and uh, ultimately the journey uh, brought me here to the north of Canada, which is a very special part of the world. It certainly is. Maybe if you could just tell us a bit more about how you progressed and to where you are now and the, and the skill sets potentially that led to those positions. Well, uh, like everyone, I think uh, I started my career uh, doing time on the tools. So when I went to Mount Isa in 1982, the very first thing I did was go to mining school. And then I spent uh, the best part of a year underground learning about how things were at the sharp end of an operation. In fact, I did about six months on an air leg. I'm not sure anyone uses air legs anymore. That was a fabulous experience working with the guys in uh, cut and fill stopes in the lead mine at Mount Isa uh, and gradually working through the different activities that you expect in the mining cycle. MIM had a, a very good graduate program. I moved out of the underground operations at the end of 82 and uh, my first job was working uh, in the mine ventilation section of the lead mine at Mount Isa. And that was a fabulous job because it really was a, a job that took me all over the mine. And as you'd appreciate when you're doing ventilation work, you have to understand how the mine fits together. So it was a very good introduction to the three dimensions of an underground mine. And it was an important job making sure that we looked after our people so that they had air that was free of dust and diesel fumes, you know, a, a workplace that was set up to enable them to perform without being harmed in the process. During my uh, first six years of my career, I did a variety of things at, uh, at MIM. I went into the mine projects area and worked on a, a large ground support project that transformed how we did ground support at uh, Mount Isa. And uh, I also, during that time, did a stint as an underground supervisor and as an underground superintendent before moving into the mine planning area where I was designing openings in the copper mine at Mount Isa. And uh, as you know, that copper mine in those days was the largest underground mine in Australia. And we were designing openings the size of skyscrapers, a kilometre under the ground. Do you have any tips for managers or professionals in the sector, including how they could assist people in the industry? I really enjoyed the couple of years that I was doing frontline supervision. I got to know a lot of fabulous people in the workforce and I learned a lot about the conditions that people are working in and what it takes to set them up to be safe and to set them up to be successful. As a frontline supervisor, you're managing all sorts of inputs from all sorts of stakeholders. And so it really taught me how to get organised, how to be very clear about what the expectations were for the work on the day or the week how to interact with my bosses. I had a wonderful superintendent in those days, uh, a German individual by the name of Hans Masiski. Hans was uh, an uncompromising leader. He uh, expected high performance from his people. He was very quick to acknowledge good performance and he was equally quick to let you know when you hadn't met the expectations that you promised you would meet. And Hans really taught me some great lessons about leadership, the balance between uh, encouraging people, protecting people from themselves, providing clear guidance to people, and ensuring that the standards for work were always high. And it was during the time I worked for Hans and during my time as a superintendent that I really decided that what I wanted to do with the rest of my career was lead operations. That's the path that I embarked on. I had a short stint, as I said, living in Melbourne, working for 
BHP Gold when that uh, existed as a separate entity within the BHP Minerals Group. At the end of my year in Melbourne, I was approached by uh, a guy who had been working for BHP for a while and who knew me from Mount Isa. And he encouraged me to move to Kalgoorlie where he appointed me as the mine superintendent for a very small gold mine uh, at Orobanda. And it was one of the, the few mines that BHP Gold was operating in those days. Orobanda, again, was one of those pivotal experiences of my career in terms of developing my leadership. We were a very small site, a million tonnes of uh, ore movement a year for about 75,000 ounces of gold. The conditions in the open pit at Orobanda were difficult. We were mining in clay, and I've still got a picture in my office here in Canada of me looking up at a pit wall with my hands in my pockets, wondering what the heck we were going to do to recover from the latest slide that we had in the pit. Uh, the other aspect of that operation that was interesting is that we had a very young workforce. We had people as young as 17 and 18 working uh, in the pit as grade control samplers. And uh, the oldest person on the site was just 34 years of age. I'd been there two years when BHP Gold decided that it was uh, no longer going to be a separate entity. And in fact, it was taken over by Newmont Australia to form what is now Newcrest Mining. During that transition, my boss decided he was going to stay with BHP. I decided I'd stay with Newcrest and I was appointed as the general manager of the site at the tender age of 30. We had a number of contractors working for us who were local contractors. I quickly uh, discovered that I really didn't like the kind of standards that these guys were achieving in terms of safety. We had some uh, deep and meaningful conversations during my time as manager where I exited a number of the contracting firms and we took on firms that had a much better reputation around Australia. As a result of their approach to work, pushed us to higher standards of performance in safety in productivity and getting ourselves organised. And we created a very high-performing organisation in this small open pit mine just outside of Kalgoorlie. Following that uh, year, I, uh, I got a call from Mount Isa Mines to come back to Mount Isa and I had the privilege of running the copper mine uh, at Mount Isa. I really loved doing the planning work in that mine and it was a dream come true to go back and actually be in charge of the mine. As you know, we worked together in that mine and uh, as you said in your opening, we were with a very, very special bunch of people during a number of years that were all too short. And if there's one lesson I learned out of that experience is that when you are in environments like that, where you're working with special people, you really need to be present to what's going on because those teams don't stay together long. The copper mine at Mount Isa when I went back there was a pretty well-performed, well-credentialed operation. But uh, as we uh, started to look at what was going on in the operation, it was clear that there was uh, a lot of room for improvement. And we were particularly plagued by ground stability and most particularly by the stability of fill masses in this mine. Together with the team that we had here, we came up with some very innovative techniques to look after the uh, bill that we were mining against so that we were able to break the rock without collapsing the, the fill masses next door. And of course, as you know, the more you can keep dilution out of an ore stream, uh, the better is the outcome. And over the period of five years, we developed some really great techniques 
to manage that uh, ore body. I estimated at the time that we added about $100 million a year to the margin of what was already a well-performed mine. And it demonstrated to me that no matter how well a mine is performing, there's always room for improvement. You know, the wonderful people that we had there have now moved on. Many of them are now at very senior levels in the industry. And I'm always eternally grateful for the experience that we had together in that uh, operation. Richard, do you have any key values and practices that work for you that you'd be willing to share with our audience? I was approached to run the copper smelter in Mount Isa. And the copper smelter had had quite a tortured past. And I was about to become the 10th manager of that business in nine years. I knew very little about copper smelting. Uh, Basically, all I knew is that copper concentrate went into one end of the smelter and copper metal came out the other end in the form of anodes that then went off to the refinery for processing. Uh, When I was asked to take on this work, I knew that I wasn't being selected for my technical knowledge. I was being selected for my leadership skill. It was a very attractive uh, opportunity to take those uh, leadership skills for a run and see what I could do. I didn't approach that job in a cavalier manner. I I was, um, you know, very challenged by it. And I knew a number of people at Mount Isa that I thought were far better qualified than I was. In fact, I talked with one of them uh, about why he hadn't taken on the role because I knew he'd been offered it and he was a very well-credentialed metallurgist. Something he said to me has stuck with me to this day. He said, you know what, Richard? He said, I think it could destroy my career. And this is a guy I deeply respected. uh, And I looked at him and I said, you know what? I said, the very reason I want to take it on is because I think it will make my career. And so after that conversation and after a bit more encouragement from my boss, I I took on the role at the smelter. And uh, it was every bit the challenge that I imagined it would be with turnover in the workforce of greater than 50% a year, a terrible safety record and uh, a lot of dysfunction amongst different groups of people in that smelter. Interestingly, it taught me that one of the most important things you can do in a situation like that is to find the people that you really need to listen to and let them speak. Open your ears and let them speak. Once again, uh, as has been the case throughout my career, I was surrounded with highly talented people And what they really needed from me was my ears to be opened and for me to create for them the space to perform out of their skins. And that's what I set about doing. Very early on during my time there, uh, we sat down uh, a group of us and uh, workshopped for a day or so uh, a vision, a mission for the smelter, uh, a set of values that would serve to uh, underpin the behaviours that we intended to exhibit to one another. I shared what we developed with every member of the workforce during my first few weeks there. I loved doing that work, reaching out to people. And, you know, one of the the things that, that I regard as a key responsibility of leaders is to create a space and create an environment where people can find inspiration and where they can define a compelling context for themselves within which they will work and from which they can discover a level of performance that perhaps not even they thought they were capable of. 
And whilst it sounds easy to say that, the mechanics of doing that can be quite challenging. And I remember vividly uh, in one of my early town halls with a, a crew of very disgruntled people, one of the crane drivers in the smelter standing up and just launching a tirade of abuse at the professional metallurgists in the room because he thought that everything that was going wrong in the smelter was down to them. One thing I can't abide in a, a workforce is people being discourteous to one another. And so I stopped the meeting and I, I had a talk to this individual in front of everyone, but it was a conversation with him and just put it to him that the very things that were disempowering him might be the same things that were disempowering our metallurgists. And in fact, everyone in the smelter was a victim of what was dysfunctional about the systems and processes we were using. So in fact, he and the metallurgists were on the same team and uh, indicated to him that if there was anything wrong in the smelter, then that was down to me because I was the leader. I'd been there a couple of weeks, but when you're in the chair, you're accountable. So anything that was going on before I arrived became my responsibility the moment I set foot in the place. That conversation uh, with that gentleman, uh, I think, surprised everyone, mostly because nobody in the previous nine years had ever called anyone out on that kind of behaviour. And I knew that uh, it was absolutely essential that uh, people understood that they were involved in a shared endeavour. It was my job to paint a picture to them of what that endeavour was, to make it a compelling vision for what was possible for us if we all jumped in and did our bit. It was my job to make sure that everyone in that smelter knew what they contributed to delivering on the possibilities of the vision that we declared. And it was my job to set the standard in terms of the behaviours we would exhibit to one another. And that's the way you create space. The people I relied on the most in that smelter were a small group of technical people who completely redefined how we did business in that smelter. Now, they were excellent technical people. It turns out they were also very good with our people on the ground. Uh, and they worked together to make life for our people on the ground easier, to make the systems they used much more user-friendly. And we involved every single person in that smelter in the leadership training that normally only is done by frontline supervisors, superintendents and managers. And by doing that, we got everyone to understand the broader context of what we were doing. I'm a firm believer that when I'm going into a business that requires a transformation, that transformation won't occur unless people are transformed. Uh, and people can't be transformed if the environment that they're working in is untidy or unsafe, and if they haven't got the tools for the job, uh, and if they haven't been through the conversations that I talked about before. While I was at the smelter, we were working on a $200 million upgrade to the smelter and a connection to an acid plant. And uh, the project manager uh, for that work was a fabulous guy who I developed a good relationship with. And I said to him one day, I said, you know what, Gary, I said, you've got $4 million in a contingency fund and I need $2 million of it to put concrete and asphalt everywhere in my smelter to seal all of the areas that were dirt and that were impossible to keep clean and tidy. This gentleman helped me out with that and we completely transformed the physical environment of that smelter whilst we were transforming all of the processes. 
And in three years, we took that smelter to the best performance it had seen in 50 years, improving safety significantly, and I think improving the margin by about 30 or 40% over that time. Most importantly, though, the transformation in people was not just restricted to their working life. I had many partners of my employees come up to me after three years and, and just ask me what the heck happened to their loved one because this was a person who three years ago was thoroughly depressed and despairing about life and now they were back to their old selves and they were not only functioning members of our workforce, they were functioning members of their families, they were functioning members in their private lives and that was a, a wonderful outcome that went along with what we were doing at work. So Richard, could you perhaps provide our audience a bit of advice that you might pass on to your younger self? Really, the thing that I've noticed that has been most useful to me, and, and it took me a while to learn it, and I'm still learning about this, is be prepared to ask other people for help. That's particularly important if you're in a leadership role. What I've found is that there's always more help out there than you imagine. I've been surprised at just how many people have wanted me to be successful and are prepared to provide me with support and counsel when I need it. I'll use an analogy to describe it. When, uh, when someone's fallen into the water and you're trying to save them, you can't save them simply by pushing a rope at them. They actually have to grab the rope. And that's what asking for help is like. You can't get the assistance you need unless you request it. And you've got to get yourself into a space where you give yourself permission to ask for help. And I've had a number of times in my career where literally I've been sitting on a seat or sitting on a lounge with my head in my hands going, what the heck am I going to do here? How the heck are we going to get ourselves out of this? Uh, and the thing I've learned is that the sun still gets up every day. You have to get up and face it. And it's much, much nicer to be facing all of the challenges that you have to confront when you know that there's help there. I would just really impress on anyone, develop the ability to ask for help. How did you find the people that, that uh, could help you in those cases? I guess I just became uh, alert to, uh, to people who were there for me. It's pretty easy, I think, to uh, identify those people that you don't want to learn from. And it's reasonably straightforward to identify people that you can learn from. And uh, I was fortunate too that I had a number of people throughout my career who stepped up and offered me guidance and counsel. I was particularly close to one of my early managers at uh, Mount Isa Mines. I had the great privilege of working in the Glencore organisation with a, a director who used to visit me from Switzerland every three months. He was a finance guy, but uh, he had a, a lot of life experience and, and skills that really helped me. And uh, every now and then uh, when I was really challenged by something was going on, he would simply sit down with me and, and say, well, look, let's, let's just make sure we're focused on the big picture here. You've got some issues you have to deal with now, but uh, let's keep the big picture in mind. I found that those people more often than not simply showed up, Brett. What's your most memorable or funniest site story? When I worked at a caddy, the funniest thing that I'd experienced, and it's still one of the most unusual things I've experienced in my career, is, as you know, a caddy is a diamond mine in the barren lands of Canada, just 300 kilometres northeast of Yellowknife, where I live, at the Arctic Circle, basically. 
there's wildlife on the tundra. We've got grizzly bears and birds and fish and foxes and coyotes and lynxes and wolverines. Anyway, uh, I got a report one day that we had a rabid fox in our workshop. And the only way that you can handle a rabid fox is to shoot it. So we had a couple of people on the site who were authorised to use a firearm. And one of them was my environmental superintendent. This superintendent took his shotgun and went hunting the fox in the mobile maintenance workshop. Now, the thing that is funny about this to me is that my environmental superintendent was, was quite a short and rotund guy, and he was dressed up in his big coat and his hat with the ear warmers down at the side, and he eventually got the fox. The fox actually attacked him after jumping at him out of a waste bin. And my environmental superintendent shot the fox dead while it was in midair ready to latch onto him. But the thing that's in my imagination is the getup of my environmental manager. And it was almost like Elmer Fudd was out in our workplace hunting the fox. And uh, so I got quite a laugh out of that. And I'm allowed to tell you that story because I shared my uh, imaginations with him. So he knows yeah. what I was thinking. <laughs> That's it. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about where you are now and what you're doing, because I think it's the most interesting place. I think uh, the best way to answer this is to uh, just provide you with an insight into how I set up my career. I always saw my career uh, as a means to an end and not an end in itself. My wife, Trish, and I uh, were married uh, when we were very young. We were both uh, just 22 when we got married. We'd just been a year out of university. Uh, and we did something back then that turned out to be very significant. We sat down not long after we were married, and we just did some brainstorming about where we wanted to be by the time we turned 50. The upshot of that conversation was that uh, we decided that by the time we were age 50, we wanted to be in a position with our lives where we had flexibility to make choices about what we did. We basically lived our lives into that future. And just a month after I turned 50, uh, I walked away from my career. I'd spent four years here in Canada with uh, BHP at the Akati Diamond Mine, and I uh, finished my stint there after doing a, a short term as the president and chief operating officer of the asset. I wasn't destined to be president of that asset for the longer term. And uh, my boss talked to me about that and said, look, we've got a couple of opportunities for you in Australia within the group. Now, as it happened, two of our children were facing some challenges. Uh, we had one child who was facing some health issues and another child who was going into grade 12. I looked at where we were at as a family uh, and what was next for me in terms of BHP. And whilst I loved working for BHP, it really wasn't a good time for uh, our family to be uprooted again. So I elected to leave the company. What I intended was to take a, a short sabbatical. I was tired and uh, I wanted to take maybe a year off. And that was uh, nine years ago. And uh, what I've been doing during that time, I haven't been idle. I was back uh, working as a consultant within a couple of months of leaving BHP. That's what I've been doing since. I call myself uh, an occasional consultant because I haven't worked very hard at building a consultancy business. But what I have done is leverage the skill set that I developed during my career 
uh, and put a particular emphasis on an innovative conversation around leadership using safety as an access to that conversation. This is a, a concept that uh, we developed at Acadi while I was there uh, and which I've since spread into three other assets in the BHP Billiton Group or BHP as it now is. In fact, two of those assets are now part of South 32. And I recently uh, was successful in bidding on a contract for De Beers Canada to train uh, their workforce of 800 people at a new diamond mine called Garchaquay, just north of here, in this leadership conversation. We found the conversation at BHP to be highly effective at Acadi, uh, and it was very effective in the assets that I've since introduced it to, and I'm very excited about the opportunity to spread this conversation into the, uh, the wider resource industry, and uh, the work I'm going to be doing at De Beers uh, is a good place to start that. So uh, I've been doing that occasionally, uh, and what I've also found is that the skill set I acquired during my career is eminently adaptable to all sorts of things in the general community. I've done uh, a bit of work for not-for-profit organisations here in uh, Yellowknife. I've been on the board of a senior's home. I ran the Northwest Territories Chamber of Commerce for a while. Uh, I've been a director on a small resource company based out of Toronto. And um, I've got involved in some really interesting work with some of the small businesses in town that need uh, a strategic plan or a business plan done uh, and some guidance on how to create the right structures and disciplines in uh, business processes to help them be successful. And uh, oddly enough, I've been assisting uh, our church, which has got some financial challenges. So I've been doing a bit of work to look at different ways of raising revenue for the church. I even assisted our uh, our rector with a, a sermon series about faith late last year. And what I'm finding uh, is that we've got a wonderful life. The income is not what it used to be in the mining industry, but Trish and I are, are living the life we want to lead. We live in a, in a fantastic part of the world. We can go out every night during the winter and see the aurora borealis from our back deck. We love kayaking, we love bushwalking, I love snowmobiling, as you know, and we live in, um, in a, an amazing community on the edge of some of the most pristine wilderness in the world, and yet it's a, a major hub to access the rest of Canada, and in fact, we, in fact, we can fly from here to Europe in uh, about 11 hours, and from here to Australia in uh, about 16 or 18 hours, depending on connections. We're living the life that we imagined 36 years ago when we got married and the resource industry has provided that for us. The resource industry and, and our kind of focus on living into that future that we imagined has all come together to give us the life that we're leading now and uh, I must say I couldn't be happier. It's been an interesting story and an interesting um, part to watch for a long time now. Yeah, I think the, the clear message is that we're not defined by the industry we work in. There's all sorts of things we can find to do that are useful for humanity if we just leave ourselves open to those possibilities. Yeah, that's right. If you feel like you've got a need for some assistance in the area of leadership and coaching and management, feel free to give Richard a call. I'd certainly highly recommend his services, having worked with him for a long period of time and seen the results that he's got out of working with people feel free to give him a call and you'll see his contacts on LinkedIn through 
our connection as well. Thanks, Richard, for joining us today and for giving our listeners some insight into the life of operations management and leadership in the mining and resources industry. It's been great to have you here. Thanks very much. Thanks, Brett. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resourceful, stories from the site. We'll be back in a month with more tips and insight from our other industry leaders. We'd love to connect with you. You can find us on all the usual social channels and our website, resourcesunearthed.com.au. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode.